Sometimes when people write an argument in an article or lay out a point in a book, they bury the lead intentionally in order to draw you in, in order that you'll start thinking, all right, I'm following down the tracks and the footprints here. Where's this leading? And then maybe several paragraphs in or several chapters in the unveiling. The main thesis of it. Here's what it's all been leading to. And here's what the rest of it is based on. This psalm is not like that. This psalm tells you immediately. It is not bury the lead. You don't have to get into verse 30 to try to figure out what the point of the psalm is. Chapter 37 tells you in the opening line of the psalm exactly what the main point is. This is the key application. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. That's the application of the psalm. And every other verse in the psalm, today and next week when we complete part two, every verse of this psalm is trying to unpack what it is to not be unbalanced and thrown off inwardly and spiritually by the wicked around us, not to be envious of them and not to fret and be angered because of them. And then verses Two and following tell you why and how to do that. This is the main purpose of the psalm. We recognize, like Psalm 37 does, that wickedness is all around us. And there is an acknowledgement that verse 1 has with its command, fret not yourself because of evildoers, because the psalmist knows us. The psalmist knows what we are like, that we can look around at evildoers and we can get very worked up indeed. We can fret inwardly to a point of anger and disbelief and bewilderment that that becomes an all-consuming thing. He says, be not envious of wrongdoers because not only might one response be to be completely worked up over and consumed with what the wicked are doing, And to be thrown off spiritually and unbalanced in terms of our focus and seeking of the kingdom of God. Someone might look at the wicked and say, well, if the wicked seem to be gaining ground, if you can't beat them, join them. Being envious of the evildoers, looking at the wicked and saying, well, I wish I had that and maybe that's the route. And and so verse one, knowing the tendencies within human hearts, says, don't do that. Don't fret because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. This is a long psalm. In verses 1 through 40, we see one final example in book 1 of an acrostic. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And the writer makes use of a Hebrew letter for multiple lines before he moves to the next one in the way he organizes his psalm. Which is why this is much longer than just 22 verses, you know, one verse per letter. Um, Multiple lines are given to each letter as he works his way through the alphabet. So it's a very carefully composed psalm and it is an imprecatory psalm. We've thought about this recently together in our study of book one. An imprecation is a curse. It is a judgment pronouncement. It is a woe upon the wicked. The prophets will speak this way. Elements in the Gospels, in the book of Revelation, some of the letters of the New Testament contain the warnings and pronouncements of the woes of God's judgment. In Psalm 37, the writer, David, is going to reflect on the scene around us and he's going to encourage the righteous and he's going to warn about the coming day of judgment for the wicked. In our first 20 verses that we'll look at this morning, two parts to this, verses 1 to 11, 
are how the righteous should respond when evil rises. How the righteous should respond when evil rises. Verses 1 to 11 are dominated by what you should do. There are a lot of commands, things to respond with. So there's very much a concern with how should you respond given the wickedness around you. That's verses 1 through 11. And then in verses 12 through 20, what we're going to see next is what the righteous should know about the wicked. The writer is going to describe much of the heart, ambition, and future of these who have gathered around the people of God. What the righteous should know about the wicked is the writer's concern in verses 12 to 20. How you should respond to the wicked and what you should know about the wicked. By knowing how we should respond and by knowing what the wicked are like, Lord willing, we will look at verse 1 and consider that the best wisdom of all. To not fret because of evildoers and not to envy them either. In verses 1 through 11, let's look together at how the righteous should respond when evil rises. We've thought thought about verse 1 already, fret not yourselves because of evildoers. To, To fret is to become indignant, to be really worked up about that you could have stirred up anger inside of you. You feel provoked by something. It is normal for wickedness to stir up the passions for justice within the people of God. And yet there can be what you might consider a line that is crossed in our souls where we are so consumed by and maybe downcast because of the wicked that all of a sudden our anger is not merely um, righteous anger or, not, or is moved beyond righteous anger. And it is a sense of, of uh, being consumed with and unbalanced because of evil doing. It's as if the promises of God are cast to the periphery. It's as if the goodness of God, the character of God, and His plan for the world are no longer in the purview. It just only looks dark. Everything just looks dark. That's all you see, and that's all you know, and that's all you hear, and that's all you talk about. Well, then verse 1 is for you, my friend. Verse 1 says, don't fret because of evildoers. There is a God who reigns in heaven. And the wicked are not running the world. You can trust the Lord. He says in verse 1, be not envious of wrongdoers. Because we we can recognize that one response would be that you look at the, the wrongdoing going on and saying, well, it looks like it's working for them. They seem to be getting away with it. In fact, they seem to be acquiring through their wicked ends... What I would like to have for crying out loud. So, so I'm, I'm feeling pretty envious of their situation. The writer says, fret not, be not envious. And then he tells you why. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. The people who are envious of the wicked are short-term thinkers. The people who fret over evildoers do not think in that moment from a long-term perspective in light of eternity, the sovereignty of God, and His plan for the world. They're just thinking about the now. It's, it has pulled in and restrained, it has constricted their ability to think beyond the present abysmal moment. He says the wicked are going to fade, don't you know? They're going to fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. 
This is the season for that kind of thing, isn't it? You look around in your yard, you look at your trees, they don't look as good as they did a few months ago. <laughs> or at least uh, some of the trees that have uh, leaves uh, uh, on the trees still and changing colors look good. But those that are just withering away and grass in your, gra- in your uh, yard and maybe branch- branches that are now bare, he's saying here the time for the wicked is numbered. They will fade like the grass, like the green herb. This reminds us of Psalm 1. The opposite will be the case for the righteous. The righteous is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. There is a spiritual flourishing that is true for the righteous, both present and future. And there is disaster and judgment and not flourishing in the future of the wicked. They will wither like the green herb. Not so the righteous, but the wicked shall. So he says in verse 3, Trust in the Lord and do good. It's like saying, put your hand to the plow. Look at the promises of God. Consider what God has made himself known to be like and believe him. And then in believing the words of God, respond in light of that. Do what is good. Because to trust the Lord is to believe what the word of God says about God. His promises and his character, his nature of what it is for God to be God in the world. That we would say in light of his might and in light of his steadfast love, I can trust him. We thought last time in Psalm 36 about the Lord's steadfast love. It extends to the heavens and his faithfulness to the clouds. In verse 6, his righteousness is like mountains and his judgments are like the great deep. His steadfast love in verse 7 is precious. With God is the fountain of life in verse 9. If we remember these things about God, it's why it makes sense that in chapter 37, 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Good here is not subjectively defined. Good would be what is pleasing to God. Here's what verse 3 is saying. Evildoers are working out the desires of their hearts. Don't let that be what your focus is. Instead, trust what God has said and live according to what God has said to do. Trust in the Lord and do Good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Dwell in the land is very much an Old Testament notion with the Israelites in these books. And the psalmist here, David, is riding inside the promised land. His son Solomon will rule over the whole land. These are a people who are brought out of Egypt through a land of wilderness for 40 years. And under Joshua's leadership, in the book of Joshua, they enter the promised land. And God promises them, hold to my word, delight in my commands, walk according to my statutes, and you will dwell in the land. When he says here in verse 3, dwell in the land, that's another way of saying, keep God's statutes. Has he given you guidance and wisdom in his word about how to conduct your mouth and how to conduct your actions and how to think about your present and how to think about your future? Then trust the, trust the Lord. He will not lead you astray. Instead, make faithfulness your best friend. In verse 3, he says, befriend faithfulness. Your faithfulness to God, beholding God's faithfulness to you, which is to the clouds and to the heavens. Great is his steadfast love and faithfulness. What God has made known of himself, befriend that. Internalize that. Become acquainted with the ways and wisdom of God. We will not do that apart from being people of the Bible. We are in a cultural moment that has been building for many decades of rising biblical illiteracy and a lot of criticism and caricature 
of Christianity and the word of God speaks into the midst of this and counterculturally tells us, trust the Lord, do what is good. And in verse three, befriending faithfulness is another way of saying, acquaint yourself with and intimately relate with the statutes of God in his word. Let this be what guides you. You may be surrounded by people who are guided by all sorts of things. Verse three tells us differently. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I referenced earlier Psalm chapter 1 about how the righteous don't wither, but the wicked will wither. Maybe that was in the background of Psalm 37 verse 2. It will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb, these wicked. But what about in verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord? Well, if the wicked are going to fade like the grass and wither like the green herb, the righteous, the blessed man in Psalm 1, his delight is in the law of God. So the blessed man, the paradigm or pattern of the Psalm 1 man is to be the disciples' pursuit that you would delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Verse 4 here, to delight yourself in the Lord, again, is not something found apart from the Word of God. How do you know what God is like that He ought to be delighted in? How do you know anything about His character of what He's made Himself known? Did you figure it out from the stars? No, you read His Word. You believed His promises. You beheld His stories and wonders. You looked at the narratives of His great power and outstretched arm. And you said, I can trust this God. He's good. He's wise. He's sovereign. I can delight in Him. Delight yourself in the Lord is an inner disposition, isn't it? It's talking about a posture of soul that your heart toward God would be one of delight in Him. Because when we trust the Word of God and are delighting in the Lord, it shapes what we long for. It shapes what our desires are. Otherwise, verse 4 would seem like a very risky promise at the end, right? He will give you the desires of your heart. But the end of verse 4 is shaped by the beginning of verse 4. Delighting yourself in the Lord, orienting your life unto God, affects what you live for. It affects what you want. It affects your priorities. So that what you come to desire is what pleases God. What you come to want for your life and for your steps is what is wise and good. So when it says here, God would give you the desires of your heart, it's those desires which have been shaped by and guided by His faithful Word. Delight yourself in the Lord. You can trust Him. He will give you the desires of your heart. You can pray with confidence to God that He will work mightily in your life and through you to make you all that you ought to be in His Son and by His grace. Commit your way to the Lord, verse 5 says. Trust in Him and He will act. You see that these are various commands that are really hitting all along the same thing. They're not completely separate ideas. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him is a way that we commit, our Lord, we commit our way to the Lord through prayer. How do you commit your way to the Lord? You come to God, and you come to God with all that's in your mind, and all that's in your heart, and all the years that are before you, and you are committing yourself in prayer to God. God, I want to trust you. God, I want to bring glory to your name. God, I want you to grow me wise. God, I want you to uphold me, to lead me not into temptation, and to deliver me from the evil one. We are committing our way to the Lord. We don't just do this once. This is the Christian life. We wake up and we commit our way to the Lord. 
Throughout the day, we're thinking about our steps and our words, our path and our temptations and our opportunities. And we want to trust God. We don't want to think, well, maybe I should take things into my own hands and, and figure out through these worldly means what the wicked are doing because they seem to be prospering. And I'm feeling really envious of the evildoers. In verse 5, he says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. You see, we have a, we have a timing problem. We are impatient. We're like Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 16. When God had given promises to Abram that from his household would come one who would be the beginning of offspring from the line of Abraham. But time passed. This promise seemed suspended in midair. And Abraham and Sarah thought, well, maybe we should figure out how this is going to happen. And Sarah suggested, well, we have Hagar. Maybe through Hagar. And it wasn't going to be through Hagar. These, were, these are stories that in the Word of God do not hide the blemishes of the Bible characters who were given promises and who struggled to trust the Lord's providence. Who are tempted to say, well, God has made this promise, but I would rather this be now rather than later. Because we, we, we tend to think that now would be better. We tend to think, even if we wouldn't put it that way, that, that my way is better and my way is wiser. Commit your way to the Lord, he says. Trust in Him and He will act. It is the battle for faith in God. It is that struggle, that contending with the temptations that say, do it your way. Do it at your timing. Haven't you waited long enough? Isn't it time that you just get what's yours? He says in verse 6, God will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. You see, if the, if the believers will be concerned about doing what is right, Pursuing what is just. Then we can trust the Lord in verse 5 that He will act. And what He will do in acting is establish our cause. Vindicate the people of God. In verse 6 and at the end of verse 5, God acting and bringing forth righteousness is what that means. He will bring forth righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And you may look at your life right now. And you might think things seem rather dark. Dark for me personally. Dark for me and my family. Dark for me financially. Dark for me health-wise. I'm, I'm tempted to envy what I shouldn't. I'm tempted to go away that is of the flesh and of the world. We need light in the darkness. And what the psalm says is, that is coming. It is coming. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light. Clouds might right now obscure the sun, but God will move them. This darkness of injustice and clouds of wickedness are temporary. So he says in verse 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Verse 7 is still hitting at that same application that verse 1 opened with, right? Verse 7 even says in line 2, Fret not yourself. That's that opening command. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Oh, those evil devices. They look like they're working for that person. He says, don't get so worked up over that. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Patience is our response to believing that God is God. Impatience and hastiness and trying to make our life unfold in our worldly mechanisms and wicked temptations. That's a way of trying to seize authority that does not belong to us. The man who carries out evil devices is not a person who trusts the Lord. 
So when he urges us to be patient, when he urges us to be still and to wait patiently, he's, I think, trying to say, just remind yourself that you're not God. There's only one God and you're not him. And the need to wait upon the Lord is grounded in the fact that only God is God. And therefore he can be trusted. He is a powerful refuge for the righteous and the wicked. Though they look like they prosper, don't think short term only. Think down the road where their wickedness leads. So he says in verse 8, refrain from anger, forsake wrath. I don't think he's saying, don't have righteous indignation at injustice. I don't think he's saying, be indifferent to evil in the world. No. When he's talking about anger here and wrath, I think he's talking about a kind of sinful vengeance, a kind of personal vengeance that can work oneself, that you can work yourself up toward when he says at the end of verse 8, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. I think it's what James chapter 120 says. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I think that's the idea in verse 8. It's that kind of anger. It's a lack of self-control. It's an arrogance and an impatience. He says, leave justice then to the Lord over the wicked at the end of all things. Don't think that you have to take it into your hands. Refrain from such wrath. Fret not yourself. Don't you realize it tends only to evil? The end of verse 8 is arresting because here's what it tells us. If we're not careful guarding our own hearts and the direction of our own words and paths... We will look at evil and we will respond by doing evil as well. We will look at injustice and what works up within us will manifest as the flesh and worldliness. He says, don't you realize that once you start fretting, once you start giving way to your soul, in your soul to anger, it tends only to evil. We can find ourselves frustrated at evil on the outside and not address the evil stirring within us. He says in verse 9, For the evildoers shall be cut off. This is judgment language. It's judgment language where people in the land would be warned that there is promise and inheritance for those who know God, who walk in the covenant with Yahweh, who delight in His words. But for those who rebel against God, that is not their future. They will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Inheriting the land or being cut off are the options that are set before us. And in the Old Testament, it works typologically toward the future in the new. Because there is a coming inheritance for the people of God. The promised land in the Old Testament was a kind of type or pattern, an installment, a shadow of what will be fulfilled in Christ, His church, and the new creation to come. This is the land we shall inherit. This is what Jesus means when he says the meek shall inherit the earth. This is what Paul means when he says Abraham was the heir in Romans 4.13 of the world. Not just of the land, the promised land. He's talking about a hope that transcends the present moment. Those who wait for the Lord are looking with a long view. Eugene Peterson wrote a book one time called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. My favorite book title of all time. A long obedience in the same direction. That's the Christian life. That is what he is urging the psalmist's readers to do. The evildoers shall be cut off. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. So let's rephrase that. Maintain a long obedience in the same direction. That's what we're trying to do. To trust in God. To delight in Him. To hold to His word. The evildoers shall be cut off. Do you want to be cut off? That's what's down the road from the wicked. So don't fret over evildoers and don't envy what the wicked do because down the path from them is dispossession and judgment. 
In verse 10, he says, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Soon and very soon, the wicked will be no more. I know that's not a verse in the song. It might as well be. Soon and very soon, that will happen. He says, in just a little while. In these days where we see injustice rise, think about what's happening in the Middle East right now. Just the horrifying events of Hamas. And the terrible, the terrible atrocities upon the vulnerable and the needy and the poor and the elderly and the children and the women. He's warning here that the wicked shall be no more. You look carefully at his place. He will not be there. You might say, well, I just saw him there. I'm looking. Where did he go? The day shall come when that will, that will be the perspective of all those who are trusting in God. It will look in hindsight like it was just a little while. The wicked in their seeming invincibility were overcome by the God who said, let there be light. And he shall say, let there be judgment. You will look carefully at their place. The wicked will not be there. But the meek, in verse 11, shall inherit the land. The place or the allotment there, in verse 10, and in verse 11, the land is probably mutually interpretive here. So in verse 10, looking at his place, you know, the wicked might think, I bet we're going to get away with this. I bet in the end, the consequences are going to be fine. I bet in the end, we will still be able to hold to what we've worked for. And you're going to look carefully at the place of the wicked and they're not going to be there. But in the land, who shall dwell with God? The meek. The meek are those despised by the world. Who don't look powerful. Who don't have all the worldly resources. The meek are those who are humble before God and they trust Him as their refuge. That's who the meek are. And you know what the meek shall have? What the wicked in all their striving and strategies cannot keep? The, the meek shall inherit the land. That's counterintuitive. It would seem like in the ancient world, if you're going to invade something and occupy something, you've got to have power. You've got to have military fortresses. You've got to have really good strategies. You've got to have savvy leaders. And you've got to have some kind of policy to be able to maintain the hold you have. The last thing you would think is that anything would go to the meek. And he says the meek, the meek are going to get it all. And you know what the wicked are going to have? Nothing. That's why Jesus asks his listeners in Mark 8, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and then forfeited his soul? Because the people who are entranced by the worldly pleasures of this age and who are living in rebellion against God, they are not thinking long enough. They're thinking about these mere years now. And they are, not, they are not being shaped by the promises of God and the warnings of God and the truths of His Word. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Oh, the joy and glory and peace that awaits the people of God. It is not some small, meager thing where everybody is going to be able to... You ever, we have the, this uh, situation with our, our children every once in a while. They, they want a particular thing, but there's not enough for all of them to have the same amount. So it's like, all right, we're going to have to split this up. All right, and, and because we have four boys, it's like this has got to go four ways. It's got to go four ways. So they're going to end up with what they wanted, but with much less of what they wanted. And in a lesser to greater way. Think about in verse 11. They will delight themselves in abundant peace. I think the Lord Jesus demonstrates this when He feeds 5,000 and when He feeds 4,000 and everybody ate and was satisfied and there was plenty left over for them to put in baskets. In verse 11, the glory and joy and peace that is in store for the people of God is not something small to be meagerly divided and to be quickly consumed and say that was it. 
It is to be heading toward a future of such abundance in the steadfast love of God and such glory with the people of God that our delight is beyond what we can possibly fathom in this life. And that is what we are moment by moment heading into. On social media, there's a man named Isaac who shares from time to time something I love to read. It's a great reminder. He'll, he'll begin the day by saying, Dear friends, this morning we're one day closer to heaven. Isn't that amazing? One day closer. Yesterday we were one day farther away. But we are one day closer to heaven. The meek shall inherit the land. They shall delight themselves in in abundant peace. We are closer now to all God has made us for than we've ever been. We're not farther away. We're closer now than ever before. Jesus alludes to Psalm 3711. You probably heard it, and I mentioned it earlier as well. But you probably heard the reference, the meek shall inherit, and you thought, that just sounds like Jesus in the Beatitudes, doesn't it? In the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek. Now, if somebody was thinking about Psalm 37, they might have said, okay, here he goes. He's quoting from Psalm 37. That Jesus, he just loves quoting the Old Testament. But the meek shall inherit the... And if you left a blank, and Jesus said, what's that going to be? And they'd say, oh, we know Psalm 37, 11. The meek shall inherit the land. And Jesus says, well, I mean, yes, but all that the land points to as well. All that the land anticipated, all that the promises of God in the Old Testament were foreshadowing. So you could say, the meek shall inherit the earth. Because in the end, God will make all things new, a new heavens and a new earth, for the old heaven and the first earth will pass away. This is what Revelation 21 and 22 say. In verses 1 through 11, this is how we should respond. Think about the commands. Don't fret. In verse 3, trust the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord in verse 4. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him in verse, in verse 5. Verse 7, be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Fret not over yourself over the one who prospers in His way. Verse 8, refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. These are the ways we respond to the rise of wickedness. What do we need to know about the wicked in verses 12 and following? What should the righteous know? The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees his day is coming. People do not love the truth of the Bible. If you start talking to them about ways in which we should live, the true and living God we should obey and revere and abandon idols, the way we should govern our sexuality by the word of God, our culture gnashes its teeth. In verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. The wicked hate the truth. The wicked love the darkness. The wicked do not want to submit to the words of God. They want to do what they want. And the last thing they want is a reminder that there is an authority over all things who will bring them to judgment. They gnash their teeth like animals, like something rabid, like something predatory. So the wicked are plotting against the righteous. They're not indifferent to the righteous. They want to see the righteous undermined. They want to see justice corrupted. They want to see God's words and God's people overthrown. They plot against the righteous and they gnash their teeth. In verse 13, but the Lord laughs. So we thought earlier about Psalm 1. Psalm 1 has some echoes here. Psalm 2 does as well. Because in Psalm 2, in the opening two psalms of the whole book, Psalm 2 talks about how the wicked gather against the anointed one. And God in heaven laughs at them. He holds them in derision. 
It is the response of seeing something absurd. And in verse 13, the Lord looks upon the plots of the wicked. They think they're so smart. They think their plots are invincible. And God rightly sees this as completely ridiculous. He laughs at the wicked. For he sees that his, the the day of the wicked, is coming. How does God see that the day of the wicked's judgment is coming? Because he's appointed it. That's how he sees the day is coming. He knows the appointed day of the wicked. For he himself has appointed it. And he himself is the judge. He knows all about their day. The wicked in verses 14 and 15 need to prepare for the reality that what they have prepared for the righteous will fall upon their own heads. There is a principle of reversal in the word of God that is demonstrated here. In verses 14 and 15, the wicked draw their sword and they bend their bows. It's a picture of these malevolent weapons in this situation, right? They've got the the assault prepared. They've got the sword and the bows ready to go. And with with dire wickedness and, and in a situation where their plots are for the downfall of the righteous, they've got their swords out and they've got their bows bent. They are ready to strike. And not only are they going to strike, they're going to bring down those that are not of equal military measure. The poor and the needy. How wicked is this? How wicked is this that those who ought to be defended are the targets of the wicked? This is the news right now, isn't it? This is literally what's happening day to day. Atrocity after atrocity. Now, I I grant that even prior to recent news events in the Middle East, wickedness has been raging against the vulnerable and the poor and the needy in other countries, no doubt. And until the Lord tarries, wickedness will seek to do what wickedness does in the future. He warns here that though the wicked have their sword out and their bows drawn, with the poor and the needy in their sights to slay those whose way is upright. Their their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Is that because the poor become mighty? Is that because the needy become strong? It's because God is mighty and strong. It's not because in the end the poor and the needy get the upper hand. It's because the wicked will fall before the Lord. In verse 16, so better is a little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Sounds very much like a proverb. If I didn't tell you that we were looking at Psalm 37 and I just read verse 16, you might think, I bet that's a proverb in in the book of Proverbs. And things very much like this proverb are said in Solomon's wisdom literature. But this psalm says here in Psalm 37, 16, what is found elsewhere, the same concept, That when the righteous and the wicked desire something, the wicked can pursue things with wicked means. They don't care. They don't fear God. They're not committed to the truth. They don't care about what is just. They just care about what they want. And so it might look like the wicked are getting abundant things right now. But he says, you know what's better? Here's what's better. Not having everything the wicked have and being right with God. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. The only reason you would think that having more like the wicked is better than having the little like the righteous is if you are just thinking in terms of this world. 
The only reason verse 16 would make sense is if there are things operating beyond what we can see and beyond this earthly life, which is like a vapor, that the righteous, though having little now, shall inherit the earth. That's long-term thinking. That's a promise that God will establish. The wicked, though trying to hold to what they have, will fail, he says in verse 7, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken. Who's going to break their arms? God's going to break their arms. He's going to break the wicked. This is a strong statement. The arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. He doesn't break their arms. He holds them fast. He upholds them, but not so the wicked. He brings them to judgment. His woe of wrath is upon them. Their arms which had drawn the bow, all of a sudden their bones are broken. And in verses 18 and 19, the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They're not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. He's talking here about the righteous. The blameless are not those without sin. The blameless are those whose refuge is God. Those are the blameless. Because their sin is not counted against them. Rather, by faith, they've come to receive all that God is for His people in covenant. They believe His promises. And they want to follow Him. They are now called the righteous. The upright. The blameless. Not because they're without sin. But because they trust God. And He knows their days. And that's more than just an awareness of. He knows their days in the sense of to care for and to shepherd. He knows how to be God over his people. He knows how to uphold them, how to guide them, how to care for them. And that is such good news. It says here their heritage will remain forever. That's more land imagery. Because the allotment of land in the days of Joshua was considered the heritage for this tribe or for this tribe. The inheritance of the land. He's saying what God has promised his people... It's not going to fail. It's not going to fail. He has said, trust me, enter into my promises, and you will know my steadfast love. And what could the wicked do ultimately? Their arms shall break. The righteous, in verse 19, are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. This is a surprise. In verse 19, the people of God who know God, God keeps them and upholds them and guides them. They can trust him. In days of famine, where it might look like everyone needs to live for themselves and look for what they can get, the righteous, what do they do? The righteous trust God. They say, it might look like we have little, but let's trust God. It might look like things are bleak. You know what we should do? Let's trust God. And they don't just tell themselves that. They tell one another that. They say, let's keep holding to God as our refuge. Isn't He faithful? Doesn't His faithfulness extend to the clouds? Let's remind ourselves of that. So that in evil times, the righteous are not put to shame. Because they are looking to God and they want to encourage others to look to God. Let's look to Him together. Isn't He faithful? Won't He do it? In verse 19, in the days of famine, they have abundance. The wicked in verse 20 are not like this. They will perish. This is what Psalm 1 says. This is what Psalm 2 says. Those two psalms continue to echo in various ways in Psalm 37, including here. The future of the wicked, they shall perish. Their way shall come to an end. They will fade away like the grass. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. So you go out there in the morning and you see the glistening dew and you might see verdant and fertile lands and you have to remind yourself, I mean, that's just for this moment, isn't it? It's not going to last. What I see 
out there in that lush field, what looks this way at the moment won't look this way forever. He says the wicked are like that. Like the glory of the pastures, they will vanish. Like smoke, they will vanish away. And this verse ends what we will look at this morning in verses 1 to 20. After considering in verses 1 to 11, how we should respond when the wicked rise. And what we should know about the wicked in verses 12 through 20. We should know that the way of the wicked will perish. And therefore, we do not need to envy them because the way in which they live is a way of destruction. The way that the righteous live, covered by the promises of God, overshadowed by God's shepherding care all our days, leads to everlasting abundant life. We shall inherit the earth. Earthly life does not last, but eternal life does. That's why we need Jesus. Earthly glory fades, but eternal glory will not fade. Earthly power and prestige will not deliver you from death. But bodily resurrection in the Lord Jesus will deliver you from death. What we need is Jesus. And he says in Matthew 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.